a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's Nathan Romus with you. And today, we're bringing in the big guns, I guess you could say. Uh, we've got the Minister of Justice and Solicitor General for the province of Alberta, is Tyler Shandro with us. So welcome, Minister. Oh, thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. And um, as we were saying just kind of offline before, we're a little bit tight for time, so I'm not going to go into a whole big biography on you. I'll let you do most of your talking. So um, can you kind of start at the beginning and tell us how you went from uh, growing up to where you are today? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, I, I grew up, born in Edmonton, uh, raised in Calgary, um, and uh, I became a lawyer. Um, I became involved in politics going back to when I was 16. Uh, got a membership to the PC party when I was 16. Uh, lined up outside in the cold in December of 92 to vote for Ralph Klein. And um, this has always been involved in politics, I, I suppose. Uh, and then uh, helped uh, Jason with the uh, the unity movement. And uh, yeah, had an opportunity to be part of this team and was happy to do so. Became the MLA for Calgary Acadia back in, in April of, uh, of 2019 and Minister of Labor and Immigration and, and now Justice and Soljet. Awesome. Well, and I know you did you did some work uh, when I was kind of researching your background. You worked on parole board and Calgary Police Commission as well. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. I, um, um, you know, I think ever since these two ministries were were merged you know, about a decade ago or so, um, because it's justice, it's it's often a, a lawyer who ends up being the the minister, and. Um, but, uh, and I think a lot of, you know, lawyers want to, to focus on the justice side of the ministry. Uh, but I do have, a you know, some deep connections to the, the Soul Gen files. Uh, I was a, a board member of what used to be the, the Criminal Injuries Review Board, which helped, you know, inform my, my thoughts on, you know, when we recently made some announcements on uh, victim services and the redesign of how we, we provide those services to victims. Uh, but you're right, it had, had also been on the... Uh, what we uh, used to call the National Parole Board, I guess they now call it the Parole Board of Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, was on the Calgary Police Commission as well, as you said. Great. Well, and so how did you find working on the commission? I'm always curious because obviously that's the closest thing to us uh, as the police officers, but what was it like working with the police commission? Well, we had a, a strong commission at the time, and, um, I, and I'm, I'm sure they still do, but uh, so we... Um, had a lot of, of eager folks from the community who uh, knew a lot about um, about policing and about the governance structure that's set up in the Police Act. The you know the the role of, of a city council, the role of a commission, the role of a service, and to a great extent, you know, there were tensions sometimes between um, between the commission and the, the Calgary Police Association mm-hmm. for, for various issues. But and I, I think that at the end, everybody played the role that they're supposed to do. The, the, uh, the CPA, the CPC, the CPS, um, everybody was working uh, towards you know, the, the goal of, of making sure that our communities are safe. Um, and um, some difficult files during that time. Um, I think it was soon after I was on the commission that the, um, you know, for example, the Arkansas inquiry had, had uh, begun 
uh, which was an incident that happened well before I was on the commission. But, you know, you, you can see during the, a time like that, that uh, everybody knew the, 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 you know, what the roles were for each of these organizations. And, and I think everybody worked within their, their roles to try to keep our community safe. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Um, one thing I was wondering is like when to become a minister, um, and before we get into the, the two of the main topics we are going to talk about today, I just kind of wanted to ask a bit about your current role. And as a minister, how do you get into that job? Is it just uh, start working for a political party and then you kind of, you know, meet people and continue along the path that way? Or, you know, could you be a lawyer for your whole career and then just run for a, a minister position and go from there? Well, it, it's really just um, if you are in the caucus of whoever is the premier, so you're uh, in a caucus of a governing party, um, it is uh, the, the discretion of, of the premier. And um, mm. uh, as I, I said to, to Premier Kenny back in 2019, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to serve Her Majesty in any role that, that he thinks that I'd be best suited to. And uh, that's, that's always been my perspective. Um, never have asked for anything or expected anything. Um, it's it's really um, I think just a, a matter of uh, thinking of it as service and and whatever is the best way that a premier thinks I can serve Her Majesty, happy to do it. Okay, and then uh, just the last kind of question I have about this stuff. Since we got you on, I'm very curious about a lot of different things. But um, how does um, so you can see sometimes you see a minister will be a minister for one area, uh, transportation or health or something, and then they're the minister for uh, like you're in the justice portfolio. So how do people cross over? Uh, and are there any special qualifications you need to have um, any prerequisites that you have to come in with? Or is it kind of, are you mostly acting as like a figurehead uh, for an entire department and they're kind of running the show behind the scenes? Oh, good question. <laughs> well, um, no, no two prerequisites other than just being an MLA in the governing party. Well, actually, you know, I, I think that's not even really necessarily a requirement because Prentice, when he's premier, had some folks who weren't even in, in the legislature yet who he had appointed to uh, a couple of portfolios. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, it's really just, you know, if, if you have the, the confidence of, of the premier to, to serve in that role. Um, and, you know, sometimes there are, are you know, Especially if you're in uh, serving in health for two and a half years, and most of that being during a pandemic, yet you may uh, ask for a change. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but um, I think I mean, if you look at, at in our cabinet, I mean, they're they're um, you know having a procurement engineer as the minister of infrastructure for a significant period of time, and someone who had been a uh, you know a chair of uh, of a uh, Board of Trustees for School Board, who's the Education Minister. Um, I think Premiers look for people who have had some kind of experience and, and interest in, in a certain area. When you do get appointed, um, I mean, the, the perspective that um, I guess uh, Premier would, would say, uh, maybe I, actually I'll tell you mine. I think my, my perspective is, if you thought of a, a ministry as like a, uh, a corporate kind of structure, I, I would see the the minister kind of either being like an executive chair or like a CEO role. Okay. Where the deputy minister would be more like a, a president. Maybe, maybe they'd also have like a CEO role, but um, you you kind of are, are making sure that you're you're working to 
um, you know, we're working with your cabinet colleagues to, to set a budget for that ministry. You're, you're working to develop policy. You're not you're not worried about the day to day operations. Um, you kind of are, are working to make sure things are getting done with the ministry, and the civil servants there are then working with you to to execute. And and there's you know they will have uh, priorities and uh, uh, that that they will want to work towards, and they'll highlight for you. And um, I've always seen it as my role to try and, and help civil servants who have um, you know things that are important to them to try and execute on. And then you highlight for the civil servants, look, this is what's in my mandate letter, this is what we campaigned on, or this is important to me. And you try to work together as a group to try and execute all this stuff. And, and as an administrator, you're, you're working with you know, cabinet colleagues, you're working with uh, cabinet committees like Treasury Board or policy committees, and, and with caucus, and, and with the public to try and uh, you know, either explain decisions or develop policy suggestions to the ministry, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, it may be the same sort of thing as our chief or deputy chiefs, you know, they work kind of, uh, in the structure of things top up and outward to the public. Whereas, uh, you know, you hit a certain level, maybe the inspectors or superintendents, they work downward. They are maybe closer with the day-to-day operations. Whereas as you get higher, they're kind of working upward. So no, I appreciate the, uh, the answer there. Uh, one of the main things we wanted to talk about today was getting into the uh, downtown core issues in Edmonton and the letter that you'd sent to uh, Mayor Sohi and just some of the issues that have come up with our downtown. I don't think it's any secret, uh, anybody living in Edmonton or maybe that's visited here. We've had a number of challenges with the area, uh, more specifically in Chinatown and it's been going on for a lot of years. This isn't really a new thing, but I just thought some of the timing of things was kind of interesting uh, when our city council decided to actually take on dealing with a lot of the issues that have gone on in Chinatown. Um, but even in the greater area, when you drive through Jasper Avenue, which uh, for our listeners that might not know, Jasper Ave is one of our uh, kind of our well-known streets. It's more of the, one of the premier areas to go and be a tourist or at least it used to be but now when you drive down there you see lots of storefronts are empty or uh, covered in paper the glass is covered in paper so it's not quite the attraction it used to be and we've had issues around safety concerns gang violence Uh, there's been a lot of firearms issues uh, and for myself being in the gang suppression team we deal with all these things um, what, what, what does the letter or the timing of when you sent the letter to Sohi basically saying, I want a, uh, I want a plan. I want a safety plan. And you kind of gave him two weeks to come up with this plan. What does that mean for day to day people? So if I'm just the person who goes to my job downtown, it's not really safe or I don't feel safe walking to and from work or to and from my car. What did um, the purpose of this plan, I guess you should say, what does that plan do for the day-to-day person? Uh, good questions. Maybe I'll even back up and say that I think we've seen a number of, uh, I'll call them experiments, um, not work out for a number of communities in, in Alberta, in Canada, and, um, and in particular in, in Edmonton. 
Um, and this, you know, this goes back to the federal government's, you know, changes to, to bail in, in 2019 with C-75 um, and um, you know, trying to to make some uh, robust decisions or sort of robust changes to, to how bail is determined, but essentially making it almost impossible for somebody to be held in pretrial custody. So there are a lot of people who are end up being caught by um, by, by a police officer, um, but the accused, you know, and, and most most accused don't have to be in pretrial custody. They, you know, bail is, has been around for such a long time because it makes sense for most uh, offenders. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of folks, in particular, if they're reoffending and reoffending and reoffending, and for some offenses, it's just not appropriate. And I, I think that those changes have made our communities less safe. So that's that's a big part. Um, I think there's there's also been some decisions by previous government related to harm reduction. I think harm reduction is an important part of being able to address um, the the opioid crisis. But it's not the only thing, and and I think having four um, four consumption supervised consumption sites in a very small area has had a very significant change to that community, as you kind of hinted at, and and so some of those decisions, um, and there's a variety of them. It's not any one thing that we can pinpoint, but there were just a variety of of these these uh, decisions that have slowly over time made some of our communities less safe. So you say, you know, what, what does it mean for someone walking on the street? We've seen, we hear this from, you know, I'm, I'm from Calgary, but I do also have a place in Edmonton. And um, it, it has, uh, you know, I think downtown Edmonton uh, has has changed uh, significantly over the last little bit. People are becoming less and less safe. People are becoming more worried. And and this is also something that a lot of businesses have made to me if if you guys want to have this Alberta recovery plan and bring jobs back and recover from you know the the, the triple whammy hit to our economy in in 2020 that's great but if people don't feel safe downtown how do we bring jobs how do we bring the people back downtown to work in these jobs um and so we we've been watching with interest on how that 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 increase in crime had, had was was being addressed by by council and uh, by the commission, and I, I think we just also had concerns with some of the public conversations that were being had um, related to what is the right answer, and um, and perhaps some suggestions that I thought were going to to make um, even greater concerns with the safety of, of downtown Edmonton. Related to the, the funding of, of the um, of the Edmonton Police Service, mm-hmm. me as the minister, me as the minister. I mean, I, I know your question is about what does it mean for the person on the street, but you know, I'm I'm responsible uh, for um, you know, for a number of things when it comes to policing. You know, whether it's at the beginning of the Police Act, when you know, I'm, I'm responsible for the Police Act, I'm responsible for um, uh, policing standards. Um, I'm responsible for through Section 30, making sure that police services are are doing the right thing and that they are funded by their their commissions and their um, city council. So um, we we ended up uh, using Section 30 to to say to Edmonton that we we want to work with you in in addressing the increases in crime and making sure that there is a plan uh, to to make sure that going forward that we're going to have the policing resources that we need in that. In particular communities, like you've identified, like Chinatown and downtown Edmonton, to be able to address these really significant increases in crime, and so that that was the purpose of it for the person on the street. I hope what it means is that they will see those resources. Um, I mean, this is the whole point of why we have a police act. 
and and we have you know civilian governance over policing so that we can work together to make sure that there are you know the you know the deployment of resources in in areas of a, of a municipality that where it's needed and um, so that I, I hope that Edmontonians will, will see then this this action plan that's been developed by Edmonton um, and taken some of the feedback that we've provided with at uh, the city council uh, to make sure that those resources are there and then we, we see a plan to be able to address and, and reduce the, these increases uh, in, in you know uh, violent crime I'll say. Is there any so when the, I know the the provincial government gives a certain amount of money for say uh, shelters or mental health work is there any sort of accountability on the organizations that receive that to report what they do with that money or where it goes, because I know that's, that's a huge discussion, even amongst the frontline police officers. Like you're saying, uh, when they see these people who reoffend, reoffend multiple times, and then, you know, the, the community groups say, well, they just need help. Uh, we don't want to put them in jail. It's like, well, where's, you know, where is that help? And what are you actually doing? Uh, we know you get a ton of funding. Is it being used properly? Or, you know, should we look at another program? So is there any sort of accountability uh, once that money is sent out to those organizations? Well, I'm just speaking from my experience in the three ministries that I've been in, yes, when, when you provide uh, funding, whether it's a grant or, or otherwise, to, to an organization that there, there are grant agreements and then there are reporting requirements uh, that are usually included so that we, we do um, know uh, and have reported back up to us times in which that doesn't happen, uh, which, which there are times in which it hasn't happened. Uh, in particular, we, I think we saw with some federal funding provided to, uh, some organizations in, um, in the South part of the province and, and that lack of accounting ended up, you know, we ended up having, um, a, um, uh, an audit on, on those, uh, on the finances and finding some irregularities and some concerns. Um, so I think it's that, that just highlights what you're pointing out, which is that it, there is a need for, for that type of reporting and that type of transparency. So we know where public, you know, taxpayer dollars are going to, to address these things. But I, I'd also just say this, because part of your question was talking about, um, you know, uh, people getting the help that they need and it's not going to come from, uh, being, uh, in an institution. Um, and I, I'd say this just from my time on the parole board. Uh, when when people do have to uh, be in custody, um, you know, post post trial custody, or you know, time between the time when, when they are sentenced to their stat release, um, you know, hopefully that, that there is going and there are offers of, of programming for people to be able to understand what the triggers are and to be able to help them be successful after stat release or if they're on some other type of conditional release like uh, parole. And so that they can be successful and not reoffend, and and uh, and so those programs are available in institutions, federal and provincial remand. So mm-hmm. um, just to make that clear, that just because someone's going to prison doesn't mean that they're not getting the help that they need, right? I hundred percent agree, I, I, and I think that gets lost in the conversation a lot of the time. People look at it just as jail, and they think you're getting sent off to the gulag, and that is not the case in Canada, uh, anyways. I mean, they, there's certain challenges once you're in an institution uh, and, you know, safety being one of them because you're around other people who uh, have a lot of other issues to deal with. 
And sometimes there's gangs in there and uh, different things occur. But I think a lot of the discussion just kind of is very shallow when it comes to that, uh, that type of reform. And people don't talk about, you know, some people do need to be kept in, in custody. And then when they're there, they're receiving the programs, the treatment. Uh, they're, you know, can be doing some sort of community work, whatever it might be. But there's a lot of different ways you can help a person while holding them, especially for the ones that are multiple reoffenders. I actually had this conversation with uh, Joe Gamaldi, and he's on the um, Fraternal Order of Police in the U.S., so they're kind of their national union. And we talked about a lot of the, the reoffending, and just when people are let back out, uh, they go back to their communities. So this is why you see uh, the stats for certain communities, why police are there, why, why we're arresting certain, uh, it could be males or females, it could be uh, black people, indigenous people. We might be in a certain community more than another is because those people get back out, they go back to their community, they reoffend. So you're just jacking up the stats of the number of arrests we have in there, the number of uh, contacts we have in there. So I thought it was, it's a really good point. Some people do need to be kept in uh, and we're not seeing that right now. Uh, I've had a number of people from my own experience, whether it's parole, probation, um, people doing working on the, the pre-trial side of things. And they basically say, you're not, you can't keep people in, especially if they're a minority. You're told, just let them out, let them go because we don't want the stats to be too high. And I thought, well, that's actually doing a disservice more so to those communities that are being victimized than anybody. Yeah, it should be focused on what's the risk to the community. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's how we made parole decisions. It wasn't about what was in the best interest of the offender. It was what's in the best interest of the community and the risk and the risk that, you know, is was mitigated enough to make it a low risk. Uh, but also, I think, you know, usually when you talk to someone, the typical Canadian thinks that there are either hundreds of thousands or millions of Canadians who are in prisons. And, and sometimes people forget that we're talking about, um, I'm, I'm, these are numbers that I remember from when I was in the parole board, but I think it's 14,000, 14, maybe uh, you know, 16,000 people on any given day who are in federal custody. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe another 24,000 um, who would be in, um, in, in provincial. Um, and, and that's, but that's for, that's for the country, right? So I think sometimes people forget that this is, you know, in total about 38,000 people in uh, provincial and federal custody and on any given day. This is back, you know, 2015 um, or so, but, uh, I think sometimes people forget what, how many people are actually serving and, and most people are actually serving in the community, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and to just kind of wrap up the stuff with, to do with Edmonton, I, now that the, the council has sent off the plan and is there any sort of uh, follow-up to their plan? Uh, is there anything kind of coming uh, next or down the road for now that they got this plan and they're looking at trying to kind of contain some of the violence? Well, they, they did um, they receive some feedback from us and uh, they, uh, from what I understand, have, have accepted it and working towards integrating into the plan. And we've made a commitment to, to working with them uh, on on those items, and uh, continue to work with with council and and EPS uh, to to ensure that uh, the the plan is is then being implemented. And um, and if there are any further changes that need to be made, or 
if there is further feedback that we would feel would be necessary for us to give, then we'll give it at that time. And uh, I, I think it's it's been great to be able to to have a relationship where we are speaking to each other. Because a big part of it is this for Edmontonians to be able to see that there's a plan and that the council, uh, the commission, the service, and the provincial government are all uh, working towards uh, the same goal, which is just to make the community safe. So uh, I, I think that's that's what we're going to see uh, in the, the near future. All right. Um, so kind of moving on from there, we're going to go a bit bigger picture. The Alberta Provincial Police discussion. And I previously had on Brian Sove from the National Police Federation. We discussed some of the provincial police ideas, uh, talked about Surrey and them switching over. So curious to get your thoughts on, uh, maybe we'll start with why, why a provincial police service? Why should or why do people want this? Well, good question. Um, for questions, I think, you know, why? Well, I, we have to go back and remind ourselves that this isn't a new conversation for us, right? I mean, this is a conversation that Albertans have been wanting to have since I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm now in my mid-40s. And, and there are a number of reasons why, you know, for, for three decades, Albertans have wanted to have this conversation. Um, because we have a number of police services in many different municipalities throughout the province. And some of them, you know, Tabor, Camrose, Lethbridge, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, et cetera, have um, have you know police services, and and the rest of the province is contracted out to to the RCMP. I think we also have to remember that policing is a provincial jurisdiction. We've had a a provincial police in the past, but by contracting out to the federal government, and this isn't this isn't uh, an issue with the RCMP. It's not an attack on them. It's not a criticism of them. And thank you to all of our. RCMP officers throughout the province for keeping our community safe, but it's um, it's a difficulty in in this disagreement with the federal government contracting out um, our police service, um, our policing from you know modern civilian oversight, modern police governance, and we don't have you know modern civilian oversight like we would see in, in Edmonton with the police commission there, uh, where they they help to to set a budget. There's oversight on the deployment of resources, there's oversight on the complaints process, there's oversight, you know, what you as uh, an EPS member um, are, are serving under is is modern police governance that, you know, we're, we're proposing to, to make some some uh, amendments to in, in the fall with the Police Act, but the the contracting out of policing to the RCMP, or to the federal government, they provide the RCMP, means that they're contracted out from um, oversight of provincial uh, legislation like the Police Act. So we don't have that. Um, we don't have, you know, training in, in the province that, you know, is, is focused on Alberta priorities. We don't have um, really say on, on recruitment and, and Public Safety Canada, their website, they're, they're admitting that, you know, how difficult contract policing is on the RCMP and that the federal government is is not providing the resources that our communities need. So we, we don't have that. Um, that oversight over recruitment, we have all of our forensics being sent out of province and then triaged on a national basis, um, where we, we need to have tiered forensics, some of it being done here in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have IT systems that don't talk to each other. And you, you know, there's there's a, a limit to how your databases in Edmonton work with pros. And I think that's a concern. Um, I think, you know, Alert has been fantastic since 2006, but there are ways in which it can be further implemented throughout the rest of the province and have further, f- 
further uh, work in how we, we provide regional uh, policing in, in certain areas of the province and, and having services work together. And so all of that together, I think people just want, want to have more of a say in modern police governance in the province instead of having it uh, exempted from that type of modern governance. Um, so that, I, I think that's, that's the reason why. And that's, again, like I said, that's not a criticism of the RCMP. I, the, the deputy commissioner, um, I think, has, has indicated to me that he would love to have this. Um, but the federal government, um, I don't think, is, is necessarily interested in, in um, trying to fix these issues with us. Um, and we're halfway through the uh, Provincial Policing Service Agreement, the PPSA. You know, we're 10 years into a 20-year agreement. Um, but uh, And we're also not the only province who's talking about this. This is not a, a partisan issue. We see an all-party committee in BC, you know, Greens and, and NDP and Liberals, um, suggesting that they should move out of contract policing and establish their own provincial police in BC. Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, PI, and, and Nova Scotia, everywhere but New Brunswick, or sorry, not Manitoba, that has contract policing, are looking to to move on and have you know uh, modern modern policing um, in their provinces as well. So this isn't just Alberta. Do you know why uh, Manitoba is not part of that conversation? And from my own experience and people I've talked to, uh, there was some issues with maybe the population that they're drawing from, they couldn't, they didn't think they could staff it or uh, they weren't sure if they could really, I guess, support the numbers that they would need to run the police service properly. Is that, uh, is that true or is that a part of it? I, I actually have not spoken to uh, Manitoba uh, about this, but um, I mean, PEI has a smaller population than uh, Manitoba. So um, I don't see it necessarily as, um, and, and look, I mean, we, we've seen in, in our municipal police services here in Alberta, I mean, when they're recruiting, they, they've always recruited not just in, you know, for example, when I was on the police commission in Calgary, we didn't just recruit Calgarians. Mm-hmm. We recruited um, nationally and we recruited internationally. And uh, uh, we, we've always wanted to make sure that, you know, Alberta is the, the destination of choice for people who want to come and, and raise their family. Um, of course, we want to continue to be that way. And so it's not the case that you would only be able to draw from Manitobans if you wanted to to, to do something like that. Yeah, and I think uh, you kind of uh, hit a good point there with a lot of the oversight issues. When you look at the current Nova Scotia inquiry into the mass shooting they had, and just some of the, uh, we'll call it pressure or influence that uh, they're talking about with the federal government putting on the RCMP themselves, and whether the RCMP actually operate as uh, a separate entity from the federal government, or if they're just considered another department there, um, there's some question about that separation there and whether you have that or not. So maybe more oversight, bringing it more local is uh, definitely a valid point. Um, what about the funding? So if, if you were to switch to a provincial police service, do the federal government, uh, does the federal government still provide any sort of funding or is it you kind of go at it on your own? And I imagine we have a, a blueprint in Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland. They all have their own provincial police. So what would that kind of look like for funding? Well, first let me say this. When it comes to funding, like right now what happens is we, we just have you know, policing being provided in our communities and then the federal government turn around and give us an invoice. 
and they, they invoice us for 70%. So they're subsidizing it. You're hinting at, you know, a 30% subsidy on, on policing. But it's also, you know, they're, they're admitting that they're not providing the amount of resources that we actually need. They, they kind of decide what they're going to provide us, but we don't, as a province, really get to, to hold them to account. There's no accountability in, in the PPSA. Um, now, whether there would continue to be a subsidy or not, uh, we don't know because we haven't sat down with the federal government to ask them. But, you know, if we go back to the, the current PPSA, because it was executed in uh, 2012, um, and but you know what this this started to be negotiated back in 2007, and and the, the starting position of the federal government back in 2007 was, by the way, uh, you guys want to keep on contracting with the RCT, fine with you guys, fine with us, but you're going to pay 100. percent We're going to insist on 100 percent cost recovery. Mm-hmm. So this is back in 2007. You know, the provinces I kicked up a fuss. We ended up continuing and getting a, a subsidy in the current PPSA, but. You know, when ten years from now, when this current PPSA uh, concludes in twenty three two, and and when we start negotiating with them for a new PPSA, um, I'm I'm positive that the federal government is is going to say this is the end of the subsidy. If you guys want to contract out with the, the this is provincial jurisdiction, if you guys want to contract, we're happy to provide you with the RCMP, but it's going to be a hundred percent cost recovery. So I I think we only have you know ten years left in this subsidy anyways with the federal government. Okay. And can you kind of give us an idea of where the conversation is at now? So uh, when you talk about, you know, we still got to discuss funding and what it might look like for municipal services. And are we going to service the greater Edmonton area or the greater Calgary area? Or will the provincial police do that? Can you kind of give an idea of where the whole picture is uh, at this moment? Well, first, uh, where things are right now, um, when I came into this job in February, um, soon after that, I went to the, the spring conferences for um, the rural municipalities and um, Alberta municipalities, which would be the AUMA. And uh, they both had conferences in, um, I think it was about March. And, and, and the municipal politicians had said to me, look, uh, the, the consultations that happened to date weren't robust enough. We wanted to have more conversations with, with you. And um, I committed to them saying, great, hear you loud and clear. I will then sit down and meet with all of you and discuss and make sure I'm answering your questions. Um, and most most municipalities, I think the number one concern has always been cost, that they um, have been, been told incorrectly um, by a group that this is going to end up being a uh, greater cost for municipalities. We've made a commitment to a municipalities that will not result in greater cost to them. Um, and, um, and that's, I think that's, uh, been great to be able to have those conversations with those municipalities. We're not done those consultations yet. Um, and then, um, I, I suppose it's, it's up to the next government, you know, um, and I think Premier Kenny has said that no major policy shifts while he is, you know, before his retirement and then leaving this for the, the next premier and, and their cabinet to, to decide on. So I guess the next steps would, would be up to them. And we haven't had any um, negotiations with the, the federal government or not. When, you're, when you talk about what it would mean for a you know current municipal service that already exists, um, there'd be no changes. Um, you know, to the extent in which you know a, uh, a municipal service is already working with an adjacent community, it, it'd be the exact same relationship. Um, there have been some communities, though, because you talk about regional policing. Mm-hmm. We're kind of hinted at it, and there was there's a couple of municipalities that said, "Well, you know what? 
I, I either want to stand up my own municipal service uh, or, um, you know, we don't want to contract out with uh, the province. We would want to contract out with an existing uh, municipal service that is adjacent to us. And, and I said, that's great. Why would I get in the way of that? So we, we actually had uh, an announcement recently where we were providing grants of $30,000 to municipalities who want to do a business case. And it doesn't have to be you know, just standing up your own, but also if you want to you know, investigate, should, should we um, work with, for example, Edmonton, that has a lot of adjacent municipalities that are, are mid-sized, and work towards a, a regional service that is working for um, more than one municipality? I'm, I'm happy to, to support that. And that, that was the, the purpose of those grants. So municipalities can make those decisions themselves and, and have that business case being developed. And I, I definitely don't want to be in the way of, of folks doing that. Um, regional policing is something I'm, I'm happy to support. As long as they're, I don't, don't ever want to impose on anyone, but if, if they make those decisions, then that's great. I'm happy to, to make sure that I'm, I'm not in the way of those decisions. Well, I think we recently saw that with the announcement of the, the funding for some of the indigenous areas. It was the Sutina, Lakeshore, and Blood Tribe, uh, some of the funding so they can hire some more officers while the federal government's doing a, a review of that whole program. But I thought like, that was some, of the, some really good news. And it is good to see them with their own police services and um, taking part in this whole process. Uh, I, I thought that was some really welcome news and some good news in a time when there's a lot of... Uh, I don't want to say controversy because I don't think it is controversy, but just a lot of issues around policing and, and just uh, who we police and how we're doing it and everything. Um, I thought that was really good. So, uh, Oh, thanks for that. And, and that was, you know, as I, I think I made a, a public comment that I, I want to encourage and to do my part in uh, more of our first nations communities and, and, you know, standing up their own self-administered service. And, um, and the three chiefs of the existing self-administered uh, Indigenous services um, wanted to meet with me and, and explain to me, gosh, if you want that to be the case, you, you should know this, that we're not um, funded equitably. Um, we're not treated fairly. Um, our funding is not flexible. We're not allowed to have a specialized unit, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because, you know, they're funded 52% by federal government and 40 by us as a province. And the, the FNIP, the First Nations, um, indigenous policing program has been frozen. Uh, it's, it's funding, quite frankly, is broken and needs significant repair. And they weren't getting that equitable treatment uh, from the federal government. So wanting to make sure at least we're doing our part as the province and, and filling in that gap and making sure that they have the resources that they need to, to be successful in those communities. So that, that, uh, thank you for, for noticing that announcement. Yeah. Um, so I know I, I said at a, uh to your communications people, I wouldn't keep you forever. Uh, when you started talking about bail reform, I almost completely changed the subject, but um, <laughs> the, uh, we'll have to have you back on because that is something I could go on for for a long, long time. Um, That'd be great. We appreciate you coming on. And uh, is there anything you think we missed? Anything else you want to uh, say or cover? Well, as you said, there's so much to talk about. I'm happy to come on uh, at a later date and... Um, and talk about uh, other topics uh, again. Uh, that's great. This has been a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate chatting with you. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. Is there uh, any way that people should follow you or uh, any events you have coming up that you kind of want to throw a plug in for? Well, maybe because we, we did talk about um, the uh, provincial 
please. We we actually are, are launching a website um, today, actually. And it's the future of abpolicing.ca's website. So future of abpolicing.ca. And uh, what we're doing is, is just making sure that Albertans can learn about what the future of poli- provincial policing may look like um, through this website, making sure that the public has the information that they need about opportunities for a new provincial police service and what that could bring, like uh, improved civilian oversight and, and more frontline officers, in particular for rural areas. And we just want to make sure that accurate information is out there. Mm-hmm. And um, so pretty pretty happy that uh, there's this opportunity to engage with Albertans through this website. And um, we're happy to spend the rest of the, the summer and, and this um, this fall in engaging with Albertans on this, yeah. uh, this talk. So uh, that's, that's about it. And thanks for giving me that opportunity to plug that Dan. Thanks. Okay. Um, just hang on the line for two seconds. I'm just going to stop the recording and uh, say goodbye to you off offline. But yeah, we appreciate having you.